Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dare to Guelph podcast. This is Guilherme, Communications Coordinator of Dare to Guelph. And I'm very excited to host today's episode because uh, we have a very special guest. But before I introduce her, um, I would like to remind everyone to give us a follow on Twitter um, and also make sure that you take a look at our new letter, uh, call it Depeller. So um, today's guest is Dr. Christine Bays. Uh, Dr. Bays is a geneticist, professor and researcher at the University of Guelph. And I honestly, I don't know how she managed her time and energy, but she's also a small farmer. So, Christine, welcome to the Dare to Guelph podcast. Thanks so much, Guillermo. I'm excited to speak with you. Great. So, um, I actually gave a very general and brief description of your role at the University of Guelph and genetics industry. So, perhaps we could start um, with you talking a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. I was uh, I was born and raised about an hour west of, of Guelph, Ontario, near a little town called Mitchell. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm and I spent a lot of my time milking cows and stacking hay and doing all sorts of farm things. Um, I did my undergraduate degree here at the University of Guelph, but I benefited immensely from doing exchange programs in Russia and in Germany. And then I realized how good German beer was. So I ended up doing my master's degree in animal welfare in Germany, and then also my PhD in quantitative genetics, also in Germany. Uh, I spent a few years doing contract research and teaching in Europe before I came back to Canada in 2015 to take up my position here at the University of Guelph in the Department of Animal Biosciences. Uh, since then, I have had the wonderful opportunity of leading a great team of graduate and undergraduate students working on uh, livestock genomics. I um, hold a Canada Research Chair in Livestock Genomics since 2019, and since May of this year I've, I've taken up the position as Chair of the Department of Animal Biosciences. And that's pretty much me. <laughs> great. Going back to, um, to the farming side of your background, so um, I was just wondering if this is uh, well, I actually have a question about your baby steps on livestock research and why you choose genetics. So is it related? Yeah, I, I grew up around livestock, Jeremy, and I absolutely love this sort of interdependency between humans and animals. Um, I can't imagine a world without livestock. I can't imagine a world without farming. And I think it's it's fascinating. Um, it's a fascinating area of research uh, with regards to the genetics part of it. Um, I, that's also fascinating. I guess biologists um, back in the 1940s, they had difficulty accepting that DNA is the genetic material because it's so simple, right? The chemistry of DNA is super simple. It's four nucleotides and that's it. Um, it doesn't matter if you're a cauliflower or an earthworm or a cow or a human, we all share the same DNA. And for me, that is really the, the absolute most incredible thing that has fascinated me since I since I learned about that in biology. So that's kind of why why I'm into it. Of course, there's it's a lot more complicated than that, but that's <laughs> kind of that's pretty cool. <laughs> nice, yeah, that's great. Okay, so let's jump to the first topic of this this episode. So we're gonna talk about in this first section. We're gonna talk about methane emissions and feed efficiency. So uh, I know that you work with lots of cool topics like genetic selection of turkeys for healthy and welfare, but I believe you have been uh, mostly involved with two main projects in dairy cattle. So one is the Efficient Dairy Genome Project, 
which is followed by a second project, which is the Resilient Dairy Genome Project. So perhaps you could um, give us an overview, especially on the concepts of efficient and resilient cows. Sure. The Efficient Dairy Genome Project started in 2015, and that was focused really on collecting information on feed efficiency and methane emissions. That project started with uh, Dr. Filippo Miglior and Dr. Paul Stothard of the University of Alberta, along with a whole bunch of international partners. And the goal there was really just to create a database for feed intake data, so dry matter intake, but also methane emissions. And people at the time thought that we were crazy for, for doing this because they thought, oh my gosh, you know, methane is not important, but feed efficiency really is because it's a true, it's a big part of the cost of a dairy farm. But what was really cool about that project is that we saw that so many different countries were interested in this area of research and so many people were willing to contribute. With the Resilient Dairy Genome Project, we wanted to expand from just focusing on feed efficiency and methane to other traits that are correlated to efficiency, to production efficiency really. So we're striving for enough data to include the relationship between these different types of traits. Um, and the way that we've defined dairy cow resilience in the if Resilient Dairy Genome Project is the capacity of an animal to adapt rapidly to changing environmental conditions without compromising productivity, health or fertility while becoming more resource efficient and reducing these animals' environmental burden. So it's a really hard um, sort of hurdle to jump over, but that's that's what we're after. I, and I think with with today's technologies, we can we can actually achieve that. That's great. Yeah, I I agree with you. That's a, that's a very strong and important uh, concept for for dairy cows. And I was just wondering, you mentioned already, but uh, I believe that you have several partners right on this project. So perhaps you could just mention some of the countries. Uh, you already mentioned some of the universities that involve it or industry members. Um, just for us to have a have a perspective and an idea of this whole the, the, the magnitude of this project. <laughs> yeah, the 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 efficient dairy genome project was really big. The resilient dairy project is even bigger. This is we're talking about a twelve million dollar project. We've got about forty University of Guelph researchers, um, numerous staff and student researchers, both from the Ontario Agricultural College and the Ontario Veterinary College, but also FAIR, so the Food Agriculture and resource economics um, departments here at the University of Guelph. We're really happy be that we have this capacity, but but we're also working with other universities uh, in, in Canada. And internationally, we're working closely with research teams uh, of the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding in the U.S., as well as a number of universities in the U.S., like Michigan State, Iowa State, Wisconsin, University of Florida. We've got collaborators in Brazil. Uh, we're working with people at Aarhus University in Denmark, uh, Qualitas in Switzerland, in Rae in France, Conafi in Spain, and I think uh, Primary Industries in Australia. So in total, there's 42 national and international organizations involved in this project, and it's it's a really big ship, but it's a, it's a fantastic ship. We actually do collaborate, and we we talk every month with all the partners. So it's it's a live uh, it's a live collaboration. It's not just one that's on paper. Nice. That's great. Yeah. Well, it's actually a, a very huge international large scale project. And now I was wondering, um, so perhaps you could walk us through the step by step, by step by step of this research project. I mean, especially the methane emissions. 
So could you explain to us how the data collection at the farm looks like? I mean, I believe there are different tools and different met methods to, to collect information. And also perhaps you could touch um, on the challenges dealing with <laughs> all this data and, and to finally create like a new trait for genetic selection. Totally. Yeah, this is a really good point, Jeremy. Um, <laughs> of course, if we want to do good research, we have to have good what we call a phenotype. So a phenotype is just the, some kind of a physical measurement on on an animal. And we have a really fantastic research center at Elora. And we're working, of course, some of our partners have have beautiful research centers as well. But basically, we have to actually measure the animal's breath of individual cows. So how we do that, we have a machine called a green feed machine. Um, it looks kind of like the like a mixture of a fume hood and a urinal, sort of like a cow will put her head in this thing and and will measure what comes out of her mouth. Now to do that over the past seven years, we've had probably about 70 to 80 undergraduate research volunteers who have helped us do this. And I really want to highlight how how important that those research volunteers have been to this project um, because it, it's it's hard right we're measuring cows five days a week um, we have a fantastic technician at elora gail ritchie who takes beautiful care of the cows she makes sure that they're accustomed to the tie stall barn and she makes sure that they get measured rain or shine snowstorm or no store snowstorm we just have a really dedicated team that is so important for this. Um, the, the challenges, of course, are um, getting a consistent type of data over years. This isn't just a, a little project that you can finish in a few months. We've been doing it since since 2015, and we're going to continue to do it for the next couple of years as well. So, so it's really um, every single individual who has been a part of this project has contributed to the success of it. So. I just have to say kudos to them. That's that's how we we got to where we are. Oh, that's great. And I was wondering, uh, which are the other other places that are also measuring methane? Uh, methane is being measured right now at the University of Alberta in Canada. Okay. And we have a green feed machine at UBC, but it's not up and running yet because they're doing some construction. But but in Canada, that's where the, the methane information is coming from. And then every international partner is also me measuring methane, too. Yes, sure. Great. Thank you for that. Um, so yeah, perhaps we could now talk a little bit about the outcomes of this research. So Canada is committed to achieve net zero greenhouse uh, gas emissions by 2050. And this project is essential, right, to reduce uh, livestock emissions. So perhaps we could mention, we, we, we could talk a little bit about the importance of this genetic trait. And also you could mention about the new, uh, the new national genetic evaluation by Lactanet. For sure. So what we've seen is that there's uh, there's a lot of variation between individual animals uh, with regards to how much methane they are producing. Um, right now, everybody knows or many people know that that methane is a super potent greenhouse gas, right? It's 27 times worse than CO2. And on average, we've seen that our cows produce a little bit less than than 500 grams of methane per day. And that's because of their digestive system, right? They have four stomachs, they have enteric fermentation, and we can see uh, quite quite a lot of variation between these individual animals. And that variation is because of their genetics, not because of the feed that they eat. So you can have two cows, you're, they're fed the same, and 
just because of the, the different genetics, there might be a 30% difference above or below um, above or below the average. The most extreme animals, we've seen differences of up to 250 grams. So some animals, on average, they produce 500 grams. At the low end, we have animals that can produce 250 grams of methane per day. And at the high end, we have animals that are producing 750 grams of methane per day. Now, that's a that's like the extremes, right? On average, it's about a 30% difference. Um, so the bad thing about methane is that it also represents a loss of energy. So about four to seven percent of the gross energy intake for an animal can be lost through methane emissions if they're if they're not um, using it to make uh, to make milk. So the national genetic evaluations by Lactonet that have been published, I guess, in April of this year, are super exciting because number one, we're the first country in the world to be able to genetically select for methane efficiency. And number two, it will really help us address these goals of the dairy industry to achieve uh, greenhouse gas or a net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Of course, genetics isn't the only answer. We need to work with nutritionists. We need to work with management uh, groups. But we think that genetics can probably commit or we can we can probably reduce it by about 30 percent via genetic approaches in total. So that's awesome. <laughs> And, and that's yeah, that's great. That's actually very impressive. Nice. And now I was wondering, um, well, you mentioned that you're going to keep measuring um, for a few more years, right? Methane, hearing wealth. But I was wondering about if you have an idea of what the next steps on this methane uh, mitigation looks like or would be. For sure. And this is this is what I'm really anxious about, Guillermo, because we're currently waiting on the news of a new Genome Canada project that uh, will incorporate not only the genetics of methane emissions, but also nutritional aspects. So up until now, we've focused on, on the genetics of the animal, but there, there is a huge amount of variation that's caused by the microbiome of the animal and the bugs in its gut. And this is where we want to work together with other people from other fields to get the best results. Ultimately, what we would like to do is to have predictions of methane emissions for all the cows on on recording schemes in Canada. And really what we want to do is we want to have that information flow into the inventory that Canada reports to the UN every year because we can do the best research in the world but if the government doesn't understand or doesn't want to incorporate that into their inventories it doesn't really mean anything. So our new project, hopefully, if it's funded, we will be able to uh, work together with Environment and Climate Change Canada, as well as nutritionists, and get a uh, you know a really accurate prediction of methane emissions for Canadian dairy cows, which is a lot better than where we're at now. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's really nice to see different areas and groups communicating with each other and going forward, right? Um, and also, well, we have been talking about it, but it's also related to this uh, methane emission research. But we'd like to talk a little bit more about the, the feed efficiency studies and the feed efficiency part of this project. So could you walk us just through the concept of feed efficiency? You already mentioned a little bit, but just to make it clear. For sure. If you have two cows and they are eating the same amount, um, one cow might produce more milk and the other might produce less milk. And of course, if you had the choice, you'd want to feed your animals the same, but you'd want to get more milk out of them. That's a really simple concept. That animal then is more feed efficient. 
but of course it's not as simple as that. We know that cows have um, have a lot of stress in their transition period when they're moving from being pregnant to producing milk. So the the feed efficiency evaluation in Canada has been developed so that the selection pressure happens after the peak of lactation. We want to avoid um, selecting animals that just metabolize a lot of their stores, their, their energy stores. We want to make sure that these animals stay healthy and fertile, but we also want to make sure that they're using every little bit of feed that they're eating for, for either their calf or for their milk. Um, and the concept of feed efficiency, really feed is one of the most, exp most la largest expenses on a, on a dairy farm. And if we can if we can improve that, um, we can reduce the costs while still maintaining a high level of productivity and 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 really production efficiency on our on our farms. Great, thank you for that. Uh, and it's also there is also a genetic evaluation by Lactanet as well for uh, as well for feed efficiency, right? Absolutely. In 2021, uh, they came out with a uh, feed efficiency evaluation, so producers in Canada can actually select for animals that are ranked highly for for feed efficiency as well. Okay, great. Uh, so yeah, just before we we stop talking about uh, methane emissions and feed efficiency, I was just wondering, um, have another question. So, have you seen anything in the field of uh, milking robots um, and Anything related to to methane uh, evaluations or perhaps feed efficiency related? Absolutely. This is a great question, Gary. Thanks for bringing that up. We <laughs> currently have um, we're currently measuring feed efficiency with all of these fantastic volunteers. But of course, if we want to have a national evaluation and we want to maintain good data collection, um, we can't. That's way too labor intensive. It's way too expensive to do. So what we're working on right now is we're prototyping something called a methane sniffer. And these sniffers, uh, they're, they look kind of like a, they're just like a, a pipe that can be installed into the, uh, the robo our robotic milking system. And we can, we can actually measure methane emissions in the milking robots. So this means that we don't need all those fantastic volunteers. Of course, we want to keep our gold standard of, of uh, data collection at our research stations. But what it means is for commercial farms is that with robot facilities, we can actually start measuring methane emissions on a large scale. Um, and, and the cost of these sniffers are, are, of course, much lower than the equipment that we use at the research station. We're talking around the tune of $7,000 per unit, which is, you know, that's that's a lot different than the over a hundred thousand dollars that we spent on the green feed machine. So we're looking at trying to to measure at scale across across the country. And as soon as we can start to do that, we're um, we're really on the path to uh, to improved efficiency and reduced methane emissions. That's great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to see um, the next steps of these projects and. Yeah, well, let's jump to the next topic of this uh, episode. And actually, it's my favorite because so, I really like reproduction. But let's talk a little bit about fertility traits and also disease resistance. So we know that not only high milk yields matter, right? And actually, there are lots of other topics in dairy farming that needs more attention, for example, health and reproduction. So I think it would be great to hear from you a little bit about your involvement with the development of novel fertility traits and i think you call it closer to biology um, traits but um maybe we can start talking about the limitations of the current uh, fertility traits 
Oh, Guillermo, you're, uh, you're, you're, you want me to talk about my favorite topic. <laughs> I love, um, yeah, I, I think that we can do a lot better when it comes to fertility traits. We've had, uh, we've had a good run, um, but a lot of the traits that are currently used in the genetic evaluation system um, are not are not as close to the biology of the animal as we can be right now. So we, we breed for things like days open or interval from calving to first service, but those traits are, they really have more to do with the producer, like the farmer, than, than with the animal themselves. And looking forward, uh, we've got a lot of new technologies that are coming onto the market, things like activity monitors um, that really let us measure activity of the animal, but also heat cycles, etc. in a very, very um, sort of objective way. It has nothing to do with what the producer thinks. It has more to do with what the animal is telling us through her movements. And what we're trying to do as well in this, in this project is to think about how to um, incorporate some of those new traits without, without having them cost a lot, um, but to, to really improve um, improve the fertility of our animals and, and really to get down to, to what we want to improve as opposed to how a producer wants to manage his the fertility of his herd. That's great. Yeah, I was actually going to ask, but we're seeing lots of new technologies being created, right? And those technologies are helping farmers to make decisions. Um, but it's also allowed us to get more information like in a, in a constantly uh, pattern, right? Um, okay. And you mentioned already about the colors. Is there anything else? I think I think there is also progesterone in line, right? Would be one of the options. Absolutely, absolutely. What we can see is from even just from the activity monitors, we can measure how uh, how regular an animal enters into her cycle, how intense she experiences her her heats, um, and and how consistent her heats are over over time. These types of things are really going to help. Um, are really going to help us improve the fertility of our animals. Even things like like reproductive tract size and positioning scores that have been um, that have been measured by reproductive physiologists around the world, but but geneticists haven't really thought about those yet. We've our work shows us that these traits are indeed heritable. So that means that there's a genetic component to them, and if that's the case, then we can we can actually select for animals that have more favorable um, reproductive tracts and more favorable estrus behaviors that will ensure more fertile animals. Great, yeah. So uh, I, I was going to ask as well, but I saw that recently uh, a new parameter was released, which uh, and, and it involves the size of the reproductive tract and its its positioning. So you, you already mentioned this, but could you explain how this, this uh, trait works? For sure. We've we've worked together with uh, a team at University of British Columbia, uh, in particular with Ronaldo, Dr. Ronaldo Seri, who is a reproductive physiologist, and his team found out that um, there are sort of three classifications of where the reproductive tract is positioned inside of an animal. If it's if it's high up between the pelvic bones, or if it's really deep in in the body cavity of the animal. And Ronaldo and his team found that there's actually a, re a relationship between how well animals conceive and where their reproductive tract 
lies as well as what size the reproductive tract is. So we had a PhD student, Audrey Martin, who was working on this, and she found out that um, indeed the reproductive tract size and positioning score is heritable, and there is enough variation to be able to select for this trait. So we're going to have to work on collecting a little bit more data on it, but I think that it, it might be a really, a really great new trait for, for genetic evaluation. Perfect, nice, that's cool. Um, and another important aspect uh, of the, the Resilient Dairy Genome Project, I think, are the studies, of, uh, studies on resistant disease, the resistancy, right? So which kind of disease are you looking at at this project and what's the, what's the goal? Yeah, totally. This is um, this is a really important part of the project as well. We've looked at fertility disorders and Lactonet has actually also already come out with fertility disorder genetic evaluations. Currently, we're working on Yoni's disease, uh, leukosis and different aspects of calf health like diarrhea and respiratory um, respiratory problems in calves. So we're working really closely with a number of veterinarians and producers uh, to try and collect enough information to set up a, a genetic evaluation for, for these types of traits as well. Great, nice. Um, okay, so our next topic and the next topic of this conversation would be breeding programs and future directions for genetic selection. Um, so I was just wondering if you could explain to us a little bit more about the lifetime profit index and the pro dollar. Sure. So the Lifetime Profit Index is kind of like the S&P 500 for those of you who are on the stock exchange. It's it's a sort of collaboration of all different traits that uh, get put together that we can rank animals with. So we know that animals are selected for production, uh, production traits, things like fat content, protein content of milk. But we also know that fertility traits and reproductive traits and health traits and longevity traits are also really important. And it's pretty tough for producers to uh, select or to decide what to select for on their own. So we've come up with, um, well, Lactonet has come up with uh, lifetime profit indexes and pro-dollar indexes. And those are indexes that incorporate all of the 67 different traits um, that are currently collected on dairy cattle in Canada. And they sort of bring them all together, weight them accordingly to, um, to their economic value and provide a single number with which we can rank our animals. The main difference between LPI and pro dollar is that LPI is sort of more of a confirmation focused uh, index and pro dollar really is the amount of profit that an animal is expected to make by the time it turns six years old. So the units of pro dollar is really it's dollar value <laughs> and um, <laughs> and the units of LPI are it, it, that's just an index that that people can can use to um, to select beautiful animals, I guess, or the most the most beautiful animals. Either one, they're both they're both quite highly correlated. Um, but they're just tools that, that producers can use to help simplify the selection process. If you breed by LPI or pro dollars, you're, you're pretty sure to get, uh, to get the best possible animal that you can get. Okay, great. It's interesting. Um, and also we, may, we talked about new traits that are being developed. So what would be uh, the, the steps or to, to include these traits in the national index? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Correlations are tricky things. I don't know how many people know this, but but milk yields, uh, kilograms of milk, is not actually a trait in the index. Much more we focus on protein content and fat content because those traits are all correlated to one another. So what we need to do um, for any any time that we think about a new trait, we have to think about how it what is its relationship to all the other traits that are currently in the index? And if there's sort of a, a way of mixing them up that is, um, that's optimal, really, to get the most gain for most of the traits. Um, a positive correlation doesn't mean that that's a favorable result. Uh, it could be that you want a negative correlation between some traits, but really balancing all of these different, um, all of these different traits and their weights is... Um, is really what a geneticist has to do. And, and with all the new traits, we also have to start thinking about getting maybe rid of some, some traits that, that are taking up space in our, in our selection profiles. Okay, great. Yeah, so I have another question here. Uh, in a global perspective, uh, what have you seen as new emerging traits for genetic selection? So I, I know that you are also involved in projects related to environmental changes and heat stress. In, in their cows, but perhaps we could talk a little bit about um, future new traits or things that are emerging and people are studying now. For sure. I think an animal's resilience to its climate, uh, those are huge, that's a huge area of research, but also how an animal contributes to that climate are, are both really important. They're two sides of the same coin, I guess. Um, looking forward, we can see generally that there's a trend towards more functional traits. Um, I think our animals are are really quite productive. They've they've we've we've done a lot in terms of of content or, or the amount of of product that our animals are producing. I think the focus will also change to to quality of of the products. Um, you've probably heard of A2 milk. That's a, just a specific type of protein in the milk that's higher in A2 animals. Um, but there's, there's, with all of these new technologies that are being developed, there's a huge amount of, of opportunity for, um, for breeding animals that are, that are healthy. I think the main thing is to make sure that they're balanced with all of the other things that we're trying to, to improve as well. Great, nice. Um... Yeah, well, like I mentioned in the beginning of this this episode, you also work with other livestock um, animals, right? For example, turkeys. So based based on your perspective, uh, what's similar and what is different regarding genetic selection in different livestock uh, animals? Oh, wow, that's an awesome question. <laughs> that's, that's really an <laughs> awesome question. It's, it's really... Um, I think when you look at other livestock species, you can see sort of different paths. Uh, with with poultry and swine, for example, those are those are sort of litter-bearing species, right? You've got a lot of there's a fundamental physiological difference in how they reproduce. Every female has a large number of offspring, um, which is different than than cows. But with new reproductive technologies that are being used in cows, embryo transfer, IVF, all these sort of things, those species are not actually that different. So when you start taking a look across species, you might be surprised at how much more um, you can learn from sticking your head into another into another sort of area. 
and there's there they seem different at the beginning but then when you think about it you can see that they're actually quite similar it may be a weird way of thinking but if i mean cows have eggs too actually right yes <laughs> right start thinking about this um this comparative uh, comparative analysis and what we can learn from different species to make the most efficient animals um, that we can make and also to start to consider how uh, the public considers our animals too. So with all of the, the technology technological advances we have to think about um, how do people perceive cows and how do people perceive birds um, or swine or horses or even companion animals. As I said at the very beginning, Guillermo, the the DNA is the same, right? So we can yes. learn a lot from these different from these different species. <laughs> Great, that's very interesting. Thank you for that. Uh, well, I have just a final question here, Christine. Um, I was just wondering about um, what do you think that um, the next challenges in poultry agriculture looks like? I mean, what would be the the uh, the next things that agriculture will be facing, and how we could overcome those? Just, just a little bit about your perspective. We touched in different and important topics in this conversation, right? For example, technology, uh, environmental change. But I was just, uh, I was just would like to hear from you about the future agriculture. Wow, that's a that's a big question too, Guillermo. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we live in a really dynamic world. There are uh, there are a lot of questions coming up. Um, with regards to our place in in society, I guess uh, we're under we're under attack in some in some areas with regards to the the procedures and the the processes that we've used to produce food up until now. I think that um, these challenges are also going to have to, or we also have to consider changes in demographics with with agriculture. Um, Canada is a big country. It's a really fertile country, especially this area of, of, of Ontario. Um, but we're going to have, you know, an influx of, of new immigrants into our country. We're going to have people moving from rural areas into cities. And we have to think about what that means for, for agriculture and for food production. If we um, extend the borders of Toronto to cover all of southwestern Ontario, that's going to change how we can produce food here. Um, how we can overcome these challenges, I think we have uh, a lot of knowledge. Uh, we have a lot of knowledge with regards to agriculture, but we also have a lot of knowledge with regards to um, technologies and ways of thinking. We've also made a lot of mistakes in the past, and I would hope that we can um, we can use some of the things that we already know, that we've learned, to move forward and to make sure that we have a strong agriculture in uh, in the future and that we can feed everybody the way that they should be fed with high quality protein that's sustainable and ethically ethically produced. We're, we're there now, we can just keep going that way. Great, nice. Christine, thank you very much. So this is the end of the third episode of the Dare to Graph podcast. And I would like to thank you again for participating and sharing all this great information on genetic selection for sustainable and resilient dairy farming. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Guillermo. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs>